before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are headed straight on a collision course for the basketball playoffs. All of the bets, all of the odds, all of the series, and all of the play-in games are available for you to bet over at BetOnline. If you sign up today with our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, you can pick up your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody it is april 6th according to my count it may not be that according to your count but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening i may have uh, forgot to edit out of yesterday's podcast that we didn't have Juju Talk Sports joining us on the podcast today because I wanted to swap that Houston Astros segment in instead of talking to Juju. But we'll talk to Juju today about the Miami Dolphins and the NBA MVP as a concept more than who's actually going to win the NBA MVP award. Although I do say who I think should win the NBA MVP award. And not surprisingly, I have a cop out answer that is not taking a stance on anything but instead applying nuance and logic to sports talk analysis so we'll get to that in a little bit what I wanted to start off with on today's show and I know it's Wednesday and possibly you're listening to this on a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday and so the weekly news cycle is kind of moving beyond this but I wanted to talk a little bit about the mass shooting that happened in Sacramento which is my backyard on uh, Sunday morning, which, you know, Saturday night into Sunday morning. I want to talk about it a little bit because I have a very interesting perspective at this point in my life around gun violence and gun ish and really mass shootings. And what's interesting is that this one happened in my backyard in I live for context for people listening. I go to college. I live about 15 minutes driving away from uh, downtown Sacramento. The shooting occurred on 10th and K Street, which is generically how cities end up naming their downtowns. East to west direction is numbers. North to south streets are letters, and is basically right in the heart of downtown Sacramento, kind of where the Capitol building is, but up a few streets. That's where this shooting ended up happening. And so, and it was something that now that I've had a couple days to process, I wanted to talk out, but not talk about in actually talking about the tragedy itself. So, remember back when we talked about the Henry Ruggs situation a few times? And, you know, this is specifically related to deaths 
as it relates to drunk driving and deaths related to, you know, people dying in car accidents. Um, roughly 10 to 11,000 people die in car accidents every single year. And we find ourselves in a position where one death is a tragedy and 10 to 11,000 deaths is a statistic. This is the same thing we talked about with the COVID-19 pandemic, where a death of a loved one is a tragedy. The death of 600,000 people just becomes a number that numbs in Americans' minds and numbs in all of our minds because it's impossible to process 600,000 deaths more than just having it written as a six zero zero comma zero 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 number of deaths as there were between 2020 March or 2020 February and 2020 2020 February through April of 2021 there were approximately 600,000 Americans dying as a result of COVID-19 so apart from the tragedy side of this case I wanted to talk more about the statistical side of this because there are real grieving families in this situation i don't want to undermine that reality that there are six families who have lost a loved one in a tragic accident and 10 other people who were either facing life you know life-changing injuries in a hospital or at least went through a process of fear and panic and a lot of people's lives were affected by this and i don't want to undersell that when we talk about gun violence as a statistic. So I wanted to put that out there on the front end and then get into the kind of perspective that I've got around this issue. Because we haven't really talked much about gun violence on this podcast. And one of the biggest reasons is gun violence is an issue where I am more of an ally than I am an advocate. So for example, we talk a lot about Deshaun Watson and sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace, especially of women, but also of LGBTQ partners and intimate partner violence in situations of those sorts. That's an issue that calls to me on a personal level. I personally want to be an advocate for women being in positions of power and work environments where women are enabled to feel safe, especially in male-dominated professions like sports. That is a cause that I find to be worthy and that I willingly sacrifice and advocate for. Same thing when it comes to black and brown and Asian and minority people in positions of power. It is a really, really important cause for me and like my personally wanting to be an advocate and wanting to influence change in that regard. Gun violence is one of those where I don't dedicate the time, I don't dedicate the thoughts, and I don't really dedicate the time, effort, and energy that's required to make change. And we can't care about every issue. We can be an ally to every issue, but we can't commit our time, effort, and energy to every issue. It's not a cause that calls to me. I think part of it is because it feels so lost at this point. It feels like a cause that is worthy but isn't going to be one in this generation. And it feels like I'm in a place where I'm not so strongly called by this issue that I'm willing to put in the sacrifices now when I just, I'm not the person to do that. You know, I, I am an ally by title, by support, and by vote when it comes to gun issues. I am, I will support people who want to dedicate their time, energy, and resources to being advocates for gun reform and just decreasing the number of deaths related to guns every year in America. Definitely an ally by support there. 
um, allied by title. I'm not, and I'm not aggressively being malignant towards people who are fighting for gun violence, which there are a lot of people like that in America, just as there are people who are actively being malignant towards people fighting for the right causes when it comes to women's women being in positions of power, especially men being, um, you know, antithetical to women's sports and fighting against women in positions of power. There are people who are pro gun advocates who are fighting against like actively fighting against the cause of gun reform. I'm not in that camp either. I'm definitely more of a neutral party who is an ally in support and by vote. Generally vote for things that are pro suppressing uh pro creating more gun control especially when it comes to semi-automatic rifles, things of those sorts. An ally when it comes to doing the small part of voting in elections where your one singular vote doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of things, but it matters because not voting is more of a case of you've kind of just given in to points there. But all of that is just backstory of me. It's not an issue that calls to me as an advocate. I've stopped watching the videos and reading the news stories and getting details with mass shootings for about three years now, I want to say two or three years, I've stopped reading the details of the stories. And this was a moral conflict that I came to battle for the longest time because it felt so hopeless. I mean, when I was a child, I kind of just rolled with the punches of what everyone was telling me was right. And when you grow up in a semi-conservative household, you know, guns become one of those, um, as Hassan Minaj calls it, one of those Chipotle items on the Republican calling card. Like, a lot of people don't really care that much about guns, but because guns have become a divisive issue for the Republican Party, if you want to go along with the Republican Party, you're generally in the pro-gun camp. And so that's just something that's become more of a political weapon now and a calling card for people who want to be a part of the Republican Party who maybe don't necessarily agree with the gun stuff, but they're willing to go along with it. It's not a deal breaker for them leaving the Republican Party. And so because it's become one of those four or five, you know, trigger words, no pun intended there with you know, abortion, critical race theory, and guns, those are just things that happen to be calling cards of the Republican Party now. And so because that's the case, and because there isn't enough advocating on the other side, we see that about 19,000 people in 2020, this is the most recent data we have, 19,384 people were murdered and about, uh, murdered by guns, which makes up about 80% of all U.S. murders in the United States were committed by guns. And by the way, this is just the basic reason why people are advocating for gun reform, which is we have data from countries like Australia, New Zealand, and Sweden, and Norway that suggest that if you make it more difficult for people to acquire weapons of war, it's a lot harder. It, it significantly decreases the number of mass shootings. Like you can decline numbers three, four times as many numbers as that just by restricting people's access to weapons of war. And in the United States, we are the only country of the top 50, 15 richest nations in the world that have the level of gun laws that we do right now. It's just an argument that isn't really going to be won. Gun control feels like a battle that this generation, and by this generation I mean the generation that I live in right now, 
is just not going to win because there isn't enough of a political will to push back against it, whether it be the incredibly successful propaganda campaigns of the NRA between 1970 and 2020, which, by the way, John Oliver did a great piece on that if you're interested in hearing more about the NRA and the propaganda campaign and how the how it got to be a place where, you know, my entire lifetime, the Second Amendment and gun, you know, free access to guns has been a calling card of the Republican Party. If you want to know how it got there, there's a great story there. The prominence of gun culture in white America also makes it such that guns are, are you know, and pro-Second Amendment um, advocacy, which also plays into both prominence of gun culture in America and successful propaganda campaigns from the NRA, along with the fact that, again, the United States is the largest arms dealer in the world. Like, uh, stimulating the United States economy, plus pro-NRA propaganda, plus the prominence of gun culture in white America are all reasons that we have decided that, yeah, we are cool with 20,000 people a year dying in gun-related killings, being murdered by guns. By the way, that doesn't even account for the 24,292. This is according to the Pew Research Facility, by the way. 24,292 deaths in 2020 that were related to suicide, which, if you limit people's access to guns... There is data that suggests fewer and fewer people actually do commit suicide. The, the Malcolm Gladwell did a great podcast on this where if you remove, I think it was actually a chapter of a book, but if you remove the people's access to ways to easy and available access to killing themselves, they won't find, they won't go out of their way to find other ways to do it. It is only the easy accessibility that leads to high rates of suicide as a result of gun you know because of owning guns and the high rates of murders because people have easy and available access to guns including semi-automatic rifles that are weapons of war and so this is where it all comes together is like that perfect combination has led to a place where america has decided that 20,000 people a year dying because of guns is an acceptable number where most other, you know, of the top 15 wealthiest nations in the world have decided that about four to 5,000 is the number of deaths related to guns that are acceptable. And in places like Australia and New Zealand, that number can be even lower than 1,000. And yet the United States has decided that 20, you know, roughly 20,000 people a year dying of guns, of gun violence, is an acceptable number. And it feels really, really hopeless for me. I know it is a very worthy cause. You know, like I said, if you just limit people's access to semi-automatic rifles, which is sometimes just the bare minimum that is being advocated for by a lot of gun um, gun control advocates, is lim- limiting people's ability to access weapons of war, just doing that could decrease the amount of deaths related to guns by nearly 60 to 70%. And that's about 14,000 people's lives who end up being saved only so that people can't have war machines in their backyards. And so this is the interesting part about this is that it's not something that's going to be won because of, like I mentioned earlier, NRA propaganda campaigns, prominence of gun culture in white America, and the fact that the United States is the world's largest arms dealer, like I mentioned earlier, according to 
the SIPRI fact sheet for 2021, which is, by the way, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. In 2021, the United States was uh, was selling 39% of the share of global arms exports. That is a 14% increase from 2017 to, or sorry, from 2016 to 2021. By the way, the United States is 39% of the share of global arms. Second place in that camp is Russia, which is 19%. And by the way, Russia used to be 42% at the start of the decade, and now they're down to 19%, while at the start of the decade, the United States was at 20 So the United States at the start of the decade was around 25% of global arms exports. This would have made them second only behind Russia. Russia stopped selling guns, or people stopped buying Russian guns, and the United States started selling exorbitant more, exorbitantly more amounts of guns, including to countries like Saudi Arabia. That's how we get our oil, is we sell guns to people who commit war crimes. Okay, so it stimulates the United States economy. Guns, good for the U.S. economy because we sell them to other countries that often use them to kill gay people and kill journalists, like Phil Mickelson said. Truthfully, back in his comment that got him in trouble last or two months ago now, I think. I think it was two months ago that that happened. So, again, just that's basic background information. Back to what I was talking about before. I've stopped watching the videos and reading the news stories and getting details with mass shootings for roughly two to three years, I want to say now. And this was like a moral conundrum for me for a while because it makes it seem like I don't care. When you don't go through the stories and you don't go through and you don't empathize with the tragedy, it can make it seem like you don't care. And that's part of how I start off this podcast by saying gun violence is not an issue that calls to me as an advocate. That can sound like I don't care. It's not that I don't care. It's not an issue that personally calls to me, even though 20,000 people per year die of murders related to guns in the United States. A lot of people die for a lot of reasons, and it's hard to be an advocate and put your time, effort, and energy into everything. There are other causes that I also find more worthy from a personal level to myself that I advocate for. And it's incredibly, incredibly depressing to continue reminding yourself of the state of gun violence in the United States. And I am so, now I'm in such a place where now a shooting happened in my backyard. I was down there, not exactly on 10th and K, like I was in downtown Sacramento, the downtown common area, on Friday. I go there every week kind of as my detox at the end of the week. If you complete a rough week, you can go get yourself an ice cream in Sacramento and walk around the riverfront and sit by the beach on the river and just look out at boats and water and fun stuff like that. I usually do that about once a week, and I you know hang around that area a lot. I've been by 10th and K all the time in Sacramento. It's about 15 minutes away from where I live, so much so that when the pandemic was going on and I was really into biking, I would bike the 14 miles to Sacramento. I would go biking to that area in my backyard, in my quote-unquote adopted home, for the past three years while we've been recording this podcast, 
it happened literally in my backyard. This was a national news story. I had people from all over the world. I mean, all over the United States more specifically, but people all over the United States reaching out and asking about this because they just knew that I lived in Sacramento. And so even to this day, like it happened in my backyard and I just didn't have a response to it because it's been second nature that I don't read the headlines anymore. And the reason I did that, and this was, again, I I said this was like a moral conundrum back and forth because I don't want it to seem like I don't care, especially when I'm having articulate conversations with people who really care about gun reform. And it's an issue that while I'm an ally, I'm not exactly an advocate for. And part of that reason is it's now been 10 years, this year, 10 years since the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. I was in the sixth grade when that happened, and I'm going to graduate college at the end of this year. If we're cool letting 21 children, five and six years old, die at an elementary school, and if we're going to be cool letting 49 people die at a gay nightclub in Orlando, and we're cool with 60 people and 400 people being injured in gunfire, in Las Vegas, then we're pretty much down with anything at this point. Like, it is so deeply entrenched in the American culture war that I put in air quotes that we're just down for any amount of mass shooting to kind of wake us up. And it's going to take, like, generational changes in the culture around guns to start regulating guns at a higher level than they are now to reduce the deaths per year from 20,000. Because I personally think that 20,000 murders by guns per year, and also we can talk about 24,292 suicide-related gun deaths in 2020, which again can be significantly reduced if you reduce people's access to guns, more so the murders one than the suicide one. They all come together in one broader issue. I don't think that that number is acceptable, especially when data from other countries has proven that there are really, really easy ways to reduce gun viol- to reduce the levels of gun violence just by restricting people's access to weapons of war and semi-automatic firearms. And I don't think that that's acceptable at 20,000. And society at large has decided that's the number we're cool at because we don't make any changes and there is no political will to make the changes anytime soon. And so you're going to have to change the culture and change the people's minds over many, many generations because we're in the same place with gun violence that we were back in 2012. Yes, we see fewer and fewer incidents now than we did back in 2012, but 2020, also the data that we were reading off from the Pew Research Center, says that 2020, which is the most recent data that exists right now, 2020 was the largest gun-related death year in the history of the United States. And so we are still in a place where we have accepted that 20,000 people are okay dying per year as a result of guns, and maybe that's the number we want to have. No other wealthy nation in the entire world has decided that's the number that they want to have. Everyone else is significantly lower, but you know what? Cool on the United States that we're going to be the people who not only have massive amounts of gun-related deaths, we're going to sell guns to war criminals. And this is the really interesting part about 
we're going to spread gun culture to the rest of the world is another part about that. But here's the other interesting or not interesting. It's kind of depressing. But the other part about that, we have accepted that this must be the case to unright to leave the Second Amendment unregulated, protect gun culture and stimulate our economy. We've just decided that that's the number that it's going to be at. And I just had to make a personal choice at a certain point in a real moral and ethical conundrum that if the ideal can't be achieved, or at least there isn't the will from the larger country to achieve the political, you know, you know, to ultimately save American lives by just reducing people's abilities to access weapons of war, to use them in perpetrating situations. If we're not going to do it, I just had to make the morally practical decision to just stop reading the stories and stop feeling the empathy around those tragedies and just look at it from a macro level issue. And probably wrong, I'm sure years from now, once the political will will be there, I'll change my opinion. That's just where I'm at right now to a place where a tragedy literally happened 15 minutes away from where I am on a block that I visited many, many times. And I just didn't do any more than check a body count that was in the headline of the news story and give out my T's and P's to people who were reaching out to make sure that I was okay. Because if a mass shooting happens within 15 minutes of where someone is, you got to feel obligated to check on your loved ones. And that's kind of just a weird way that this gets processed is a mass shooting happened relatively close to where you were. Let's send our thoughts and prayers and move on in the news cycle. And I felt like it might be better to talk about it now that I've processed those thoughts and realized that, hey, this is a situation where we can talk about some of this stuff in a real articulate manner. So again, I guess the points I have there are fourfold. I am a ally, not an advocate in these situations. It's not an issue that calls to me to dedicate massive amounts of time, energy, and resources because there are other worthy causes that I'd like to dedicate my time, energy, and resources to for personal connections to it. I also live in California, so gun culture isn't really as promiscuous as many other places, although of course we talk about mass shootings in San Bernardino and mass shootings in Los Angeles and mass shootings now in Sacramento, which have all happened within the last five years you're starting to see that that, you know, it, it extends everywhere else, but it's just less of a thing in California than it is, as so I've heard, in other parts of the country. So, again, I am an ally by title and support and vote. Gun control feels like a battle that has been hopeless, and for years I've stopped reading the headlines around these issues, which moral and ethically morally and ethically difficult to do it's not that i don't care and it's it took a lot for me to kind of figure that part out and like hearing other people talk about it um especially after black lives matter where people talked about not watching the videos anymore and i don't want to compare this situation here because i don't go through the tragedy or the constant fear of being afraid that i'm going to be shot down but hearing people say like just for your own moral sake and for your own mental health you just stopped empathizing in those situations because sometimes it just seems so hopeless and just a reality of the situation not that nobody dies but that 20,000 people don't have to die when there are really easy ways to significantly reduce that number of gun related deaths but hey it's now 10 years since Sandy Hook. We turned that into a massive conspiracy theory, by the way. Like, I remember seeing the 
the um, 10 year anniversary of 9-11 when I was a child and then the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this past year. And it's really interesting because back then there was a whole lot of conspiracy theories that I learned about in high school around 9-11. And I didn't know any of that when they did the 10th anniversary and the 20th anniversary just felt so much different. And just because of the perspective that I had and, you know, when it was a year after Sandy Hook, because again, I was in the sixth grade. I remember the day that that happened because my uh, fifth period teacher in sixth grade wouldn't tell us about the situation because it was only right if our parents informed us about the situation that was going on. We knew something had happened, but it needed our parents to inform us because that was the appropriate way to hear it as to not stoke fear all across school, similarly to how 9-11 ended up stoking fear because Sandy Hook was the thing that opened up to the idea of school shootings, which, again, when I was in high school, people organized marches, people organized events around protesting gun violence, and whoopty freaking do It didn't do anything, because there just isn't the political will on a national level to stop 20,000 people, or in the data from 2020, according to Pew Research Facility, 19,384 deaths as a result of gun violence. And that's just the situation we find ourselves in. If we're going to be okay with 21 children dying at an elementary school and 49 people dying in Orlando, 60 people dying in Las Vegas, we're just kind of going to roll with the punches at this point. And every now and then one of those mass shooting events are going to happen and we're all going to feel bad for the amount of time that we read the news story. And then not actually have any change because we can kind of forget about it once the political will pushes back against people trying to make actual real social change. So maybe maybe 20, 30 years from now, we'll, we'll circle back around and have a chance to reduce that number. But for now, it just seems kind of hopeless. And I'm going to continue doing the thing that I've done for the time being, which is I'm going to stop reading the headlines, even when it happens in my backyard. And it's a tragedy that could or should be an opportunity to prompt social change, especially in the Sacramento area, in local politics and regional politics and maybe even California politics. But you're not going to see real legislative change uh, without the social change of the country and the political will, the political and social will of the country behind those changes. And that's just not a place that we're in in 2022 America. Kyle, we are rapid-fire drafting an NBA team. You get first pick. Giannis. All right, I'm going to go with Nikola and Luca. Okay, I get two picks. I'm going to go Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. I am going to go Jason Tatum, and I am going to go with Joel. What a homer. Uh, I will go LeBron James and Devin Booker. You know what? Screw it. I'm going with Chris Paul. Interesting. I thought you might go John Morant there. That's an interesting choice. I like Chris Paul, though. That is a good move on your part. I need someone to get the ball in my playmaker's hands. Okay. The phrase speed kills is one way to describe the 2022 Miami Dolphins. After signing running backs Chase Edmonds and Raheem Mostert in free agency, the Dolphins weren't done. They traded for the fastest player in the league, the Cheetah, Tyreek Hill. Joining us to talk the state of Miami, Dougley Do-Wrong of the Dougley Do-Wrong YouTube channel. Want to follow him? It's just Dougley Do-Wrong on Twitter and Instagram. Dougley or Doug, what's been right 
about the offseason in South Beach? The aggression. Chris Greer came out and he said he was going to be aggressive. And at first, a lot of Dolphin fans, including myself, were very skeptical. I was like, a lot of what you were doing was not aggressive, Chris Greer. And then he got aggressive. So, and then the, filling in what the Dolphins want to do offensively, like you see what the 49ers did, you know, with Devo Samuel and their run style and all that stuff. And you and you start to see the translation of what Mike McDaniel's trying to install on this offense with, like you said, speed. Speed's going to kill. And a lot of opposing defenses are going to have to deal, especially when the Dolphins play home. And it's like 90 degree weather and you have these guys running all over the place by halftime that the other defenses can be gassed. So it's going to be interesting. In your most recent video, so you just dropped the video grading their free agency. You gave the Dolphins an A. Was that strictly the free agent moves? Did you throw in Tyree Kill into that decision there to give them that letter grade? And if not adding Tyree Kill, what exactly was the move that moved that from, let's say, a B or a lesser grade to an A for you? So, yeah, I essentially, when I gave the free agency grade, it was kind of everything they did in that free agency period of the past two weeks. I consider the trade for Tyree Kill a free agency move. Yeah, it would be an A plus if they addressed a linebacker core. To me, that is now the weakest part of the Miami Dolphins. It was the offensive line. It was like offensive line, wide receivers, linebackers, then running backs. So it was kind of like that. Now linebackers are up there. Bobby Wagner just signing with the Rams. Kind of was hoping he'd come to Miami. So yeah, it would be an A plus if they go out and get JC Treader or if they address the linebacking core. But the fact that those little pieces are still iffy, like are they still going to stick with Dieter? What are they doing at right tackle? And what are they doing at middle linebacker is why I didn't give them an A plus. But I think they killed it. You know, some of the unsung heroes like Alec Ingold, bringing him in is going to drastically help that run game. So I think you were very solid. They wanted to keep the defense the same. Again, there's this top 15 defense the past two years. So they wanted to keep it the same, keep the coaches in there, keep the players in there and just kind of fix the offense. So I think it was pretty solid, solid A. All right. Well, let's talk about the Tyreek Hill trade specifically because the Miami Dolphins get, you know, a 27 year old receiver who could retire tomorrow and you could make a case for him making the Hall of Fame. Obviously, they had to give up one hundred and twenty million dollars with about 72 of that guaranteed plus five draft picks, including a first round pick in this year's draft. So obviously it's a high price tag, especially for a position that most people don't regard as a a position that's a game changing type of player. So what do you make of the trade? Obviously Tyreek Hill makes the Dolphins the better team, but given what they gave up to get him, what did you make when the news came in last week? I was surprised, right? It was quick. It was quick uh, from our standpoint. It was like an hour, like I think around like 10 o'clock. It was like Adam Schefter was like a Tyreek Hill potential trade to the Jets or the Dolphins. And then like hour later, all of a sudden, boom, Dolphins trade everything seems like to get Tyreek Hill. Uh, But when you talk to Chris Greer, that was in the works since the Friday before. So it was in the works a day after free agency started. So again, I was sitting back saying, where's the aggression? We didn't know what was going on behind doors. I like the move. I think like, again, it fits, especially you're going to pair him with Waddle. And it's like, all right, who are you double covering? Who are you pressing? And then they bring in Cedric Wilson Jr., another speedy, you know, vertical threat wide receiver. It's like the Dolphins are making it easy for Tua to say, look, I'm not the bum that people call me, but I like the trade in the fact that it was only one first round pick. The Dolphins have two fourths this year. They gave up only one fourth. So it was a first, a second, a fourth, and a sixth this year. And then I think next year was just a fourth and a sixth. I'm fine with that, especially because we still have the two firsts next year. The cap hit. This year, it's only six million. And then next year is when he gets his 30. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. But it's essentially like a four-year contract because after the fourth year, they have an out because he's due like 50 million. 
million the fourth the fifth year and there's no way in god's green earth anyone's gonna pay a wide receiver 50 million dollars surprise quarterbacks get paid that much but his addition it helps it helps the team it helped like look at vegas our odds of winning the division shot up it helps a lot it was surprising i didn't expect it to be made i thought there was going to be more offensive line defensive help but i like the move a lot and i think he's gonna he's gonna be extremely dangerous and you could tell it was a good move because jet fans are like pissed and they're trying to like downplay oh, he's not gonna do anything anyway because two doesn't throw in but you can tell when somebody wants that player that they all of a sudden get real butthurt after they don't get them speaking about a new york based football franchise the giants did something very similar with daniel jones last offseason they went out there they acquired him a big free agent target in kenny galladay they drafted a first round wide receiver. The Miami Dolphins already have their first round wide receiver in Jalen Waddle, and now they're going out and getting Tyreek Hill. Obviously, improving the line, improving the weapons, getting an offensive minded head coach, all good things. But what type of pressure does that put on Tua this coming season? I think Tua. <laughs> It's funny, too, because a lot of people want to say, like, no more excuses. And the funny thing is, Tua has, himself has never came out and given any excuses. It's always the fans. The fans want to raffle off a ton of excuses, which most of them are justified on um, Tua's struggle. Tua never does it. I think he's him consistently putting the pressure on himself to be better. It's hard to be successful in the team that he had last year, even the year before, because by the time he faced the Chiefs in his rookie year, he had none of his starting receivers healthy. Um, last year, he had the worst. It's not even one of the worst. He had the worst offensive line so a lot of people are, are complaining why doesn't he push the ball down the field why doesn't he throw it down the field and all that stuff well if you have no run game and you have no time to throw the ball down the field then all of a sudden the defense isn't going to respect your deep passes and they're going to press the box they're going to blitz you they're going to do all these things and nothing's going to open down the field so i think adding the players that the dolphins added and it's a lot like you said moster chase edmonds tyree kill tron armstead connor williams alec ingold it's like all right here you go to it this is what you needed if everything on paper plays like it should here you go here's everything you needed now show us the alabama to it show us the guy who's going to throw the ball down the field who's going to because we've seen it and my biggest thing with two is his inconsistency because we see it we see it in games where he'll evade pressure throw the ball down the field that jet game where he ran over the friggin' uh safety like we see him playing at a top level but then the next play he'll like throw an interception and all of a sudden everyone forgets about his nice plays so once he can chain it together and stay more consistent i think people are going to start realizing the type of quarterback he can be well you mentioned consistency and that's the thing that people talk about all the time when it comes to rogers or, or tom brady or even someone of the caliber of a kyler murray is like mm. they consistently push the ball down the field but they also don't make mistakes so given what the dolphins have done and i guess given your opinions of tua do you think that they've done enough to potentially help Tua be more consistent as a quarterback? 100%. Yeah, like this is as close as you can get to a perfect offense for Tua to be successful. Like you brought up Aaron Rodgers. I think he the he threw an interception week one and then he didn't throw one for like the rest of the season. Like he's just super consistent when it comes to protecting the ball. This is as close as you can get to a perfect situation. This is what should have happened when Tua got drafted to the Dolphins. Because you saw that what happened to Joe Burrow. You saw that what happened with Justin Herbert. Okay, we're going to take this quarterback. Let's build around him. Let's give him the offense that he's used to. All that 
that stuff. They didn't do that for Tua. They didn't do that for like a whole year and a half. And then they thought bringing in three offensive coordinators is really going to help the kid. It just confused them. <laughs> so this is the the first time that Tua, somebody's actually sitting back and saying, let me help this kid out and let me put him in a situation that I can make him successful versus I'm going to make the defense successful and then just don't mess it up. That's essentially was Tua's first two years in the league. The defense is going to win you games. Don't mess it up. So he was like, all right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to force it down the field. I'm not going to try to make errant passes, yada, yada. This is the closest that I've seen the Dolphins get to helping their quarterback. Even going back to Ryan Tannehill, a lot of people wanted to say Dolphins didn't help Ryan Tannehill. They tried and they just didn't do a good job of it. This seems to be the closest. This was a very busy offseason in the coaching hiring cycle. We saw a lot of turnover. And I think one of the biggest surprises, of course, was Brian Flores getting relieved of his duties in Miami. Flores had consecutive winning seasons, but obviously in the three years he was there, never made the playoffs. Would you have made the move? And what was your reaction when it first went down? I was surprised and not in the aspect that I didn't think he was going to get fired. But once they went eight of nine, no. Yeah. Eight of nine for the last nine games. I was like, all right, well, he just secured his job. Like there's no, because if I'm the owner, once he hit one and seven, I'm firing him. Like that's just the way I, I would have saw it. And it's not even him. Once they hit one and seven, I'm firing him angrier. Like I'm, I'm done. You guys had how many draft picks, how much cap space, and you had all of this resources to build a great team. And you're starting one and seven after going 10 and six. And you're taking that huge of a step back. I'm firing them both. Greer, you're gone. Flores, you're gone. We'll have an interim for now and then i'm going to get the best coach when the season's over that's what i'm doing and the coach comes in gm comes in they do whatever they need to i want to win now so i was surprised they kept them and then also he started winning and then i was like well he ain't going anywhere now they got fired and then we all know about the legal issues but i'm not surprised i wasn't necessarily surprised he got fired because like i said you go 10 and 6 and then all of a sudden you get rid of a ton of vets bobby mccain kyle van noy eric flowers ted karras all of a sudden your offensive line is garbage because you have first and second year starters versus opposite of jesse davis four of them are first and second year starters like you think that's going to be successful and you have an offensive line coach who's been doing it never like this was his first offensive line coaching job and you honestly could sit back and say oh this offensive line is going to protect Tua Tagovailoa. Week two, broken ribs. It's like, and then it took him how many weeks to take Austin Jackson from left tackle to left guard, and he kept Jesse Davis, who broke Tua's ribs in all season at right tackle. So it, it's like it was a pile up. That's why I'm saying, like, if it was me. Once you lost to the Bills, you went one at seven, you're out. I'll bring somebody else in because he just didn't make the moves on offense. He was so focused on defense. And that's the other thing, right? All of a sudden in that Bills game, you saw a different defense. You saw a more aggressive Dolphin defense. And then they started winning. And a lot of players, uh, Emmanuel Agba, Jerome Baker, Xavier Howard came out and said, oh, we went back to 2020 Miami Dolphin defense. So you went on a seven game losing streak and that's when you thought you should go back to your old defense. Those were my, would be my thought processes. Um, you got to go. So that's why you know I was surprised because he won so many games towards the end of the season. But I wasn't because it took him too long to make the right decisions to change the team. Well, how do you feel about McDaniels now? Because I've been joking for the past three months, he was their plan C option as head coach. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you feel about him now that we've gotten into the offseason? Yeah, there, there's there's all those rumors. You know, at first it was Dable and then Dable went to the Giants and then it was a hard push for um, Harbaugh. And then he decided, I'm going to go back to Michigan. They Apparently are the we also know Sean Payton now too. Sean Payton yeah, was they, also they, they, requested was talk for with interview. That. So it, technically it was like the plan D option. And the Harbaugh thing too, there's a lot of speculation that if if Brian Flores didn't come out with the lawsuit that he was going to go to the Dolphins. But once that happened, he was like, I'm not going to deal with that. And he backed out. I like McDaniel. I think he's a, a player's coach and he's smart. I watched a lot of film breakdown where he is incredibly smart 
and he knows how to take half of your defense away with just simply putting one player on one side. He uses Kittle very well in motions and stuff. It's very smart. Now, I've gotten high and mighty and very excited for coaches. I did it with Adam Gase and I did it with Brian Flores and it bit me in the butt. So I'm being cautiously optimistic. But if he can do to the Dolphins offense what he did with the 49ers and if the defense can stay the way it has played the past two years, I think this is going to be a really good team, especially because a lot of his players are still talking to him. Kittle and Debo Samuel and all those guys, they love Mike McDaniel. So he's the type of coach that I'm going to show you, like, I'm not going to yell at you and preach to you that you should do this. I'm just going to give you an example, like here, go play here, do what I tell you. And then let's see how it pans out. Oh, you just got an interception. See, listen to me. I'm going to help you out. So I'm excited, but again, I'm cautiously optimistic. Doug, I tell you this, if the Dolphins trade for Debo Samuel, we're scrapping, we're fighting, my friend. I, you know, I don't see McDaniel deviating too much from the offense he ran in San Francisco. I see him sticking to it. He was one of the longest tenured Shanahan assistants. So clearly it's an offense that he knows how to run inside and out. And that brings up questions with Tua versus Jimmy G. How does he utilize the quarterback position? And I don't think it would be a bad thing if Tua became essentially the left-handed Jimmy Garoppolo. Because for all the flack that Jimmy gets, wins more games than he loses, doesn't make the wow throw, but makes enough good throws throughout the course of a game to help you win those games. If Tua becomes nothing more than, like I mentioned, left-handed Jimmy G, are you okay with that? Or do you think it's a disappointment given he was a top five drafted quarterback? I'd like a little bit more than Jimmy G. No offense to Jimmy G. I feel like he's the reason you guys aren't in the Super Bowl last year. Um, No, I'm sorry. (laughs) And I honestly think if if you had a different quarterback than Jimmy G, I think you guys would have won the Super Bowl last year. He held you guys back. There's a lot of dumb throws by him that Tua won't make. Tua's, he's accurate and he's a little bit more mobile than Jimmy G uh, and he's young. And that was my biggest talking point when I was watching the playoffs last year. And again, I'm sorry, I'm like ripping on your team, but I said, Hey, if Jimmy G can get this far, we can get far with Tua. Like, come on. Like, and, and a lot of people who don't like Tua push back and said, Jimmy G's better and this and that. Um, <laughs> one, but- one thing I'll say here, it, it, those guys, those Shanahan, those mm-hmm. LaFleur's, McDaniel, they value the system more than the yes. quarterback. Yes. And that's the thing I appreciate and I'm excited to see because it's not going to be a, a fight with your quarterback situation. And also, I don't know if this is an upcoming question, but I don't see if Tua doesn't pan out because again, you guys asked, is this the perfect situation? And it is, it doesn't pan out. I'm not surprised if Mike McDaniel moves on from Tua after one year because they have the two first round picks next year. I honestly think the reason they are putting all of this stuff around Tua for two reasons one let's see what you got because you got everything now and if not it's super enticing for another quarterback to see oh you got all these weapons in this offensive line i want to go to miami now versus if it was this year everyone's like i don't know miami they suck so it's going to be interesting but if he is the left arm to jimmy g i'm not that upset jimmy g went to the super bowl like are you kidding me he's he's a solid quarterback people forget everyone wants the justin herbert never been to a playoff game they want like all of these high throwing you know legit quarterbacks but forget about the Trent Dilfer the Rich Gannons the all these guys who've won the Super Bowl or been to the Super Bowl and it is possible you just have to have the right team like Tom Brady wasn't that great his first few years it wasn't until like what year three four that all of a sudden you got the actual Tom Brady so I wouldn't be upset with the left-handed Jimmy G yeah this is the interesting part is like everyone wants the quarterback but what do you do if you don't have the guy right Mm -hmm. like you gotta you gotta kind of improvise there and two is not 
terrible. He's just not great either. So you kind of find your middle ground there. So the disagreement that Juju and I have is that he believes in the McDaniel system. He believes in his 49ers buddy. And he thinks that the the Dolphins may have a, a top 10 rushing game next season. And I say that their running back room, regardless of the people they added, is still terrible. Because even if you add Edmonds and Mostert, Miles Gaskin is still technically the number one. And I don't think that any system or improved offensive line is going to change them from one of the worst rushing games to, to top 10 without getting a better running back. So how do you feel about the Dolphins running game going into next year? Um, I got to see it. I got to see it on the field and I got to see it in camp and stuff. But I see where you're coming from, because especially last year, a, a lot of what I saw was like Duke Johnson was breaking off big runs and then they would take him off the field. Some of it had to do with the offensive line, but then some of it had to do with the running backs, because again, you'd have Miles Gaskin, you have Savan Ahmed, you'd have all these guys who were just struggling to have nice games. Then you plug in Duke Johnson, all of a sudden in his second game, he, he's busting off a 100-yard game. So it's a yin and yang situation with the offensive line, but I think going back to that traditional style of running and bringing in the Alec in gold and then the style and the semantics and all that stuff that Mike McDaniel can do with the offense when it comes to motions, when it comes to opening up lanes, taking away the defense. I'm very excited because Connor Williams talked about it with the zone run scheme and how it takes the defense off their feet because it, it moves them. It moves the entire defense and it helps the offensive line be able to push these guys over. And if they can take Teron Armstead and do what they did with Williams, where they motioned him, that's like a wrecking ball. Like when I watched them first do that in the playoffs, I was like, is this like the first time I really watched Should be illegal. football? Should be illegal. Phil's illegal. It was terrifying. If I, I used to play defensive end, I would I would be scared to see him coming at me like that. Like, are you kidding me? I think they'll prosper. And I think because you're going to see Tyreek Hill back there. You'll probably see Jalen Waddle back there. It's not going to be like we're not going to have a thousand yard rusher. I don't think we're going to do that. But I think the team in a whole. I think it's going to be successful, and I think it's going to be a run first. You might even see Alec Ingold get like five, 600 rushing yards. So we'll see. Again, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I have a saying on my channel, I'd rather be surprised than let down because there's too many times after the 2016 season, the 20, 2008 season where I'm like, yeah, and then, and I did it last, I did this past season. I'm like, 10 and 6, you can only go up from here. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you're Finns fam or to Anon, definitely Doug. You have a channel that people should be following. Tell people about all your work. Where can they find you besides YouTube? What type of stuff are you working on, man? Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so I'm, if I'm not on YouTube, I'm on Twitter a lot. But a lot of what I, it's year round. Like, I don't take a break. So, like, I just, the free agency is kind of dying down right now. Friday's the first. So I'm going to start going to the draft, even though the Dolphins don't pick until the third round. So I'm still going to live stream it, but it's going to be real boring for me and my Dolphin fans. But I break down all time, um, my top five prospects at each position. And then when training camp comes, I give, you know, play by play for training camp, OTAs, all that stuff. And then I live stream every game. I do a pre post game, all that cool stuff. So I got a lot going on over there. Dougley, do wrong, do right, and hit that subscribe button on this guy's channel. The Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. Normally, my co-host hates the NBA 
MVP debate. But with a mere two weeks of games to go, we can start talking in resolutes and casting our votes appropriately. Vegas has the latest MVP voting odds listed as such. Joel Embiid is the favorite at minus 200, running away from Nikola Jokic at plus 150. Giannis Antetokounmpo plus 800. And then the distant dark horses in the top five, Devin Booker at plus 2,500. Then you have Luka and Ja tied respectively at five with plus 5,000. Meanwhile, ESPN did their own internal poll of 100 members of the media and the Joker was selected to repeat. Kyle, after hearing what Vegas and ESPN think, what do you think? Well, as someone who stands a little bit for Giannis Antetokounmpo every now and then, I'd like to point out that currently right now, Giannis Antetokounmpo has a higher player efficiency rating than Joel Embiid. It's not by much. It's a 32.4 compared to the 31 for Joel Embiid. But I understand that we're tired of giving Giannis MVP considerations. We all know he's the best player in the world. Getting that old LeBron James treatment, huh? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he's still going to finish in the top two or top three or whatever he ends up getting. But, you know, we're just a little tired of giving it to Giannis. I will remember this historically the same way I remember that James Harden finished in the top two of MVP voting four times in five years because James Harden was that dude for a long time. He is amazing at basketball. So Giannis is probably not going to get it, but I'd argue that it's a toss-up between Jokic and Giannis. That would be my pick there. I think Jokic being in like the five seed is the thing that people are holding against him. That team is basically the 2018 Orlando magic outside of Nikola Jokic and he's doing his best man he hasn't had Murray the whole season he hasn't had Porter the whole season I argued that he should try and force a trade to the Phoenix Suns this week is in a really rough situation and also he's been the NBA MVP this year putting up 26 points about 12 rebounds close to a triple double average and Nikola Jokic also has the highest player efficiency rating of any player in the NBA over the past three Three seasons. This might be one of the most efficient and best, most productive seasons in the NBA. And for people who maybe don't tune in every now and player efficiency rating is the statistic that most reflects the eye test in the NBA. 17 of the last 20 NBA MVPs have led the league in player efficiency rating. There is no perfect step, but player efficiency rating is a good one for determining the eye test of who is the best player in the league. Well, you did mention this is a very compelling. MVP race because a lot of these guys, or specifically Embiid, Jokic, and Giannis, are all fairly close in those player efficiency stats. They're very close in a lot of statistics, and I can make compelling cases for all three of them off various statistics. When I think about Embiid, Embiid was my favorite for the majority of the year, and maybe I'm starting to waver a little bit as I start to kind of like do a little bit more research into recent MVPs and how the committee has voted on their MVP decisions, how the media has voted on their MVP decisions. For Joel Embiid, if I'm still trying to make that case, I would say, hey, he is second in the league in scoring, right behind LeBron James at 29.9 points per game. We talk about Jokic not having really a supporting cast, and yes, he has Harden now, but I think we got to remember with Joel Embiid how he was carrying the 76ers while Ben Simmons was on his extended vacation since the playoffs. The fact that Embiid was the driving force for that team while Simmons was not there, and obviously getting James Harden helped him, but we're still 
still saying that this is still a very Joel Embiid driven team. So his value, I don't think has really taken that much of a hit comparatively. When you think of Jokic to be a repeat MVP, what are you doing that's excelling your team? Do you talk about it? You mentioned a great point. Jamal Murray being out. Michael Porter Jr. has also missed parts of the season as well. He's probably not going to come back to the playoffs. Almost averaging a triple double. And this is where I kind of have to be a little bit consistent for all my dogging of Westbrook. The fact that I've started to get to the point where I look at the triple double staff and I I don't revere it as much as I used to. Now it just kind of seems like a run of the mill thing, especially when it came to Westbrook and you literally saw guys bailing out of the box to let Russ get that rebound. It kind of diminished that stat to me. And I I got to to the point where triple double, yeah, it's nice. That's cool. But is it really like the make or break between winning games? For Jokic, it is because he's also a very dynamic scorer. The fact that he's still averaging 26 points per game, I think is a big part of why his team is winning. And I don't think that that takes anything away from him. And then I look at Giannis here. So the two-time MVP, third in scoring behind Embiid. So it's not like he's a bad scorer compared to the rest of the pack. In fact, he's third in scoring comparatively, which is a career high for him. And if it's a career high for a former MVP, and that means he's outpacing his MVP seasons, then that should say, well, isn't he more of an MVP this year? He's doing better than he was doing in his MVP seasons, right? He's shooting more free throws. He's shooting his free throws at a better percentage. He's uh, second in the NBA and plus minus. So all the stats are there for Giannis as well to be that guy. And they're all great defenders. These guys don't just ham it up on the offensive end and then just don't give a damn about their defense. No, they're all top five defenders. So this is a very close, very razor thin margin of MVP debate. And you can just nitpick it to death depending on what stats you like. So you are saying Giannis is your guy today. Uh, I would say Jokic is the person I would want to give the award to, but I'm it, giving it, you an MVP vote, Kyle. Can I split it between Jokic and Giannis? Can I split? You can give MVP me vote? a first, second, and third place MVP uh, vote. All right, so uh, we're gonna do this thing. So this is a this is a coring heads is going to be Jokic. Tails is going to be Giannis. Let's see what I get. Tails. So I guess Giannis number one, Jokic number two, and Embiid number three. You know, one of the things that is also interesting about this is I know that the the NBA MVP is supposed to be who is the best player in just the 2021-2022 season. But like unofficially, NBA fans have started to use the MVP as like a way to remember seasons. So like the 2017 season, season is like defined by the Russell Westbrook MVP or the 2019 season is defined as the Giannis MVP season or they define it by the champion or whatever it is. So if we're going to use the MVP award as like the main thing that we use to tell NBA history, which I don't think is the right thing to do because someone who finished second in the MVP like James Harden three times is still a ridiculously great player. Yeah, but you know, 20 years from now, the only ones who are going to remember that is who you would call old heads. Do we want that to be the case? Is the thing. Do it we want that? We want to want be that. It's going to be the case because no one remembers the AFC Championship game loser from 1979 just part of how um, I like, think it was the, the Raiders might have been the Raiders let me see but even still unless you're the an absolute sports it. junkie you know we still have to cater to more casual fans not everyone cares about sports as much as we do unfortunately it was apparently the Houston Oilers uh, the Houston Oilers apparently lost the AFC championship to the I knew the Pittsburgh Steelers won it but I wasn't sure who lost it it was the but, Houston Oilers but for but, the people that don't know the blood type of the assistant head coach of the <laughs> 1982 Lakers this is how we can measure 
measure or look at people's like history, you know, MVPs, titles, NBA, all teams, uh, which too, these guys are still going to get rewarded in some aspect on the all NBA teams or the all-star teams. That's part of their history as well. It's not like you lost out on the MVP, you get nothing, you go home, zero prizes, Charlie, go home, Charlie. You get <laughs> so nothing. If, that's good, if we're going to do it that way, and if we want to tell NBA history to casual fans through MVP awards and championships, which we already do now, like we already said, I have no rings, therefore he's a bum, which we do less of now, but that's obviously some of the way that this goes. If we want to cater that way to casual fans and tell NBA history through MVP and through like champions, then give it to Joel Embiid. Because if we're picturing out the most fair painting of NBA history from this era of basketball, how would you define the NBA from 2018 to 2022? If you're trying to make a map of NBA history, you would say two MVPs for Giannis, one for Jokic, one for Embiid, one for James Harden. And that would be a great way to explain it is Giannis was slightly better than Jokic and Embiid, but Jokic and Embiid were the second and third best players of their generation. And so if that's the way we want to tell the story and we don't want to put Giannis and Embiid, Giannis and Jokic on the same platform of two MVPs, I understand doing that. It would be a more accurate picture of NBA history. It's just a, uh, a philosophical question of sorts of whether or not we want to tell NBA history through just these first place MVPs. And there's multiple arguments you could look at an MVP discussion from. There's the pure baseline of statistics, and obviously we've given you the statistics here, and they're all very impressive for all three of these guys. But one that I think also needs to be inserted into this debate, and I know we're having this with John Morant and the fact that the Grizzlies are 18-2 and in games without him this year, but what value do you provide to your team? How would your team perform if you were not there? And when I look at those records, so currently the 76ers and games Joel Embiid have missed are five and eight, so a 385 winning percentage. In games in which Jokic has missed the season, the Nuggets are two and five with a 286 winning percentage. In games that Giannis has missed this season, the Milwaukee Bucks are six and five with a 545 winning percentage. So that stands out. If you're making a purely value-based argument, that kind of stands out that Giannis is the only one of these three games in which his team has played without him. They actually win at not a great clip, the six and five. That's nothing to write home about, but that's going to get you into the playoffs. They have all-stars around him too, like uh, Chris Middleton, uh, Drew Holiday. If Giannis had to miss an extended period of time, the Milwaukee Bucks might be one of these play-in style teams. When I look at Jokic, if the Nuggets didn't have him, in addition to the other injuries that they already have on their roster, this is a lottery team. When I look at the 76ers with Ben Simmons' absence pre-Harden, even if they did have Harden, they might struggle to fight for a play-in game. And if Harden never happened, they would definitely be a lottery team without Joel Embiid based off that 385 winning clip. So if I infuse the value basis of this argument, then I'm probably leaning towards a guy like Jokic myself self because clearly his team is absolute garbage without him. There is no difference. So here's the interesting part about that. The where the where the logic is slightly flawed in that is that we're assuming that we're only taking Embiid, Giannis, and Jokic off the team when they're not playing games. There could be a mass substitution during one of those games in which like all three of the Bucks are sitting or all of the 76ers are sitting. So it's not the most accurate picture of value. But like you said when you were just describing it, like we know the Nuggets would be dog shit without Nicole 
Nikola Jokic. We know the 76ers would struggle without Joel Embiid. And we know that if Giannis was taken off the Bucks, the Bucks would be like the seven seed in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, and they have enough pieces to compete. They're not the Nuggets. They're not the 76ers in regards to their MVP. And we even kind of saw it a little bit when Giannis went down in the playoffs last year. Obviously, it was great for them that Giannis was able to instantly heal. A little bit of Mr. Miyagi magic thrown you on You mean average 38, 15, and 10 in the NBA Finals with a flamingo leg? Exactly. No doubt that if the Bucks don't have Giannis in that series... It's done. It's gone. Yeah. So, All of this debate ultimately becomes a philosophical question. How do we want our MVP award to be? Because I know uh, Rachel Nichols on the jump for years was always articulating the NBA needs an offensive player of the year award. And you could argue that the scoring title kind of works like an offensive player of the year award. But I think like Bradley Beal might win the scoring title one time if you go back yeah, in history. So it's not the most accurate. Even this year, I look at like LeBron James performance this year, and we all accept that LeBron is just stat padding at this point and mm-hmm. i would almost hate to reward lebron this year and no disrespect to lebron i'm unlike the majority of our generation of sports pundits that hate on lebron lebron is actually one of my most favorite players in the league so i yeah. kind of hated when he went to the lakers as a celtics fan because i want to see lebron succeed but i also hate to see the lakers succeed so this season has been bittersweet for me because i kind of hate the criticism in a way that lebron has received but i kind of hate rewarding stat patty behavior in the same way that russell westbrook has lost a lot of cachet for me over the years that's the same way i kind of review uh rewarding LeBron this year. And that's why instantly I can't have someone that's like 13 games under 500 on their team (laughs) in the MVP discussion. There's some people that are still trying to make LeBron for MVP debates. No, it's between these three guys because all three of these guys are in the playoffs. All three of these guys have impressive statistical resumes and all three of these guys are worthy members of NBA history. As you mentioned, they are some of the greatest of their generation. It's interesting to see the second tier guys like uh, Luca, like a Devin Booker, uh, like a job because I've I've heard people make the argument, well, shouldn't MVP also be best player, best team? And that's where Devin Booker, you look at him and you're like, why isn't he more on this? Uh, Why isn't he more discussed? Because the Suns have just been running away with the number one seed from beginning to end. Chris Paul has missed games at times this season, and it's been strictly on Devin Booker. Why isn't Booker gaining a little bit more love? Actually, do you have an opinion on that one? I mean, I think Devin Booker is criminally underrated, but I'm also not going to put him as an MVP. Like, it's just... But why not? His team is extension of him. His team is one of the best teams in the league because he's on their team. Hence, he this is, is valuable. Is he most this valuable? Is the same phil- no, this is the same philosophical question that we had earlier, which is what do you want your MVP to be? Right. Like, so in the 80s and 90s, like when we had numbers, but we weren't paying attention to numbers. And by the way, not every game was on television. Right. So you couldn't watch every team every single night. You didn't have advanced analytics and you didn't have access to every single NBA game every single night. So in that world, people defaulted to best player on best team because that was just the information that they had was here are the standings. Who is the best team? We're going to give it to whoever was the best player on the best team. It's how Carl Malone ended up with two MVPs during the 1990s. But that's just the information that people had access to. And it was a way of telling NBA history was this team excelled in the regular season. Let's reward its best player with the MVP as long as that player wasn't Gary Payton. And so this was how they told the story 
then. And now we have access to data and analytics. And over the past 20 years, player efficiency rating, which again, it's the stat that most reflects the eye test. 17 of the last 20 MVPs were the top in player efficiency. And the only times that people didn't give it to the most efficient player was for narrative storytelling of NBA history. So I point out these three examples all the time. The three players in the last 20 years that didn't lead the league in efficiency rating, that one MVP, 2009 Kobe, because Kobe needed to have one MVP for people to like tell the story of NBA history in the 2000s. 2012 Derrick Rose, was either 2011 or 2012, whatever year Derrick Rose won MVP. LeBron was the most efficient player that year. And Westbrook in 2017, which I think Harden was the most efficient player that year. So uh, I think 2009 also was Chris Paul, by the way. So Chris Paul might have gotten robbed of an MVP by that one. Good question here. Do you think the NFL does the MVP debate better? I think in the NFL, it's easier to do it. I think in the NBA, we place so much value on the MVP in the NBA that all of a sudden the debate gets muddied because we want Jason Tatum to be acknowledged for how great of a season he is. And we want Devin Booker to be acknowledged for how great of a season he had. I guess why I say that is because you say that the NBA is a little bit more reliant on trying to sell their MVP from a storytelling, from a historical standpoint. And yet Drew Brees, as great as he was, never won an MVP in his career. Russell Wilson, as great as he is, has never received a vote. Uh, Whereas like these guys, because they're so phenomenal, because they're so great, if they were NBA players, would they have gotten more consideration for these awards? So I think both don't do it perfectly, but the NBA does it worse than the NFL. And it's not to say like the NBA is actively trying to do this. It's just how the story gets told in the NBA. We can't yeah. watch every single NBA game. And I, I think there is obviously an issue in comparing them in which they are apples and oranges, because obviously the MVP discussion in the NFL has been reduced to best quarterback. It's currently a which quarterback. normally is the case, by the way. I, I don't even think that's a bad thing, by the way. I don't yeah. think reducing it to no, quarterback because is we a bad agree because... we can make the case, and it's a very good case that the quarterback is the most valuable position on a football field, whereas an NBA, and we're talking about positionless basketball being a more new age thinking, a guard could have as much impact in game as a center, or a dynamic wing could have a good impact in a game. Now it's interesting that we're seeing two amazing centers in Jokic and Embiid, and we're seeing a power forward and Giannis who are leading the MVP discussions and LeBron obviously as one of the most dynamic forwards although you could consider him a pseudo point guard as well yeah. um, obviously has led this and we thought for a while that it was going to be small guards that were leading the MVP discussion we thought Steph Curry broke the MVP discussion and here we are in 2022 and we're talking about two centers at the top and Giannis who gets criticism we were all so dumb we were all so dumb we were like look at Steph Curry he's going to change the NBA when in reality Kevin Durant was changing the NBA right in front of our eyes and we were all too dumb to recognize it Big guys because win. We wanted to, it's simple, it's stupid, but we, big guys we, are important yeah. in the NBA. We wanted to believe that six foot two average Joes could take over the NBA. I know six foot two is nothing to sneeze at, but six foot two by NBA standards, we wanted to believe hey, average you Joes you swipe right on Tinder. As a six two man myself on a good day, that we wanted to believe that six two people could take over the league, but. What happens when the 6'11 people start shooting three-pointers, huh? What happens when the seven-foot people can put the ball on the floor? I've seen Joel Embiid do a spin move and a windmill dunk 
What yep. happens then you got when big Jokic, guards like Luka? I was going to say, Jokic, yeah, we talked about this four years ago, and it's even more true today watching the Nuggets this year, which I haven't done a lot of. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I haven't watched a lot of Nuggets this year, but I've watched a lot of Nuggets in the past. Nikola Jokic is a point center. He is the first point center in the history of the NBA. The same way Bill talked about like Magic as the first point forward, which became Scottie Pippen as a point forward and LeBron's a point forward. Jokic is a true point center. He is the first of his kind point center in the NBA where he is seven feet tall, plays a traditional big man role and takes the ball up the floor because the entire offense runs through him. But he can make passes as good as point guards from a seven-foot center position, bringing the ball up the floor, and the entire offense runs through Jokic. That was what Daryl Morey calls a super-skilled five. And the NBA began moving to super-skilled fives as soon as the four best players in the sport all became super-skilled fives. People realized that that is the next trend, is Kevin Durant is totally unguardable because he is seven-foot-one and can shoot over everyone at the levels of the best shooters of all time. And LeBron James does everything Michael Jordan can do, and he's 70 pounds heavier than Michael Jordan. Can and we all so just agree, the- though, that Kristaps Porzingis is the real trailblazer here? Uh, so close. Kristaps <laughs> was so close, man. Like, the, the world is not ready to have the conversation of if Anthony Davis was healthy, he'd be as good as Tim Duncan. But Anthony Davis kind of weirdly paved the way for all of this stuff. In a weird way, Anthony Davis in Kentucky in 2012 paved the way for a lot of this stuff if ifs and buts were candy and nuts we'd all have a merry christmas it's so strange man it's so strange anthony davis should be in this mvp race every single year he should be a super skilled five because he can play point guard and jump 15 feet in the air it's it's crazy (sighs) i guess i have to make a definitive